Born Digital brings you LaunchBase. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. The world of tech startups reimagined. Build and elevate your idea, product, and company as we take you behind the scenes with successful entrepreneurs, investors, and tech professionals. These mentors showed me a map of success. Learn from inspiring stories, business strategies, and marketing techniques that will take your business to the next level. Are you ready? And now your host, John Radford. Hey, and welcome to another episode of LaunchBase. This is a podcast all about tech startups and everything digital product. If you are a startup just starting out on your journey or a corporation looking to be more agile in your product development, this is the podcast for you. So on today's podcast, I'm delighted to have Molly Johnson-Jones, co-founder of Flexa, join us. Flexa is a jobs board dedicated to offering jobs from truly flexible companies offering a flexible work environment. Molly, good to have you on. Lovely to be joining you. So Molly, tell us a little bit about yourself and Flexa, what you guys do and sort of how you started out, what inspired you to start the company? Sure. So probably makes sense to explain my career history and then in there somewhere four years ago is kind of what initially became the idea for Flexa. So I left university and I'd had an autoimmune disease since I was 18. I left university thinking I'm going to go into investment banking Having an autoimmune disease isn't going to stop me. Of course, I can do the silly hours and the stressful life because you always think that's one of the things that you want to do when you're sitting there and thinking, what does success look like when you're 21? So I went into equity research. I was at Nomura and then five months later, got made redundant along with about a thousand other people. And I was like, God, I was actually quite happy. And I was like, maybe I'm not doing the right job, but I carried on anyway. Okay. <laughs> got another job doing the same thing. Was that just for security or you didn't know anything else at the time? Didn't know anything else at the time. I'd only given it a five month shot and I thought I'll carry on. So I got another job doing the same thing at a bank I cannot name and that will become clear. So I was working there for about a year and my autoimmune disease was getting worse. And it meant that I couldn't really get to the office about once a week, but I could still work just that my hands and my feet and my joints swell up and it's quite painful to walk, but I can still work. It doesn't stop me thinking or sitting. So I asked to work from home when I was unwell rather than having to take sick days because it was becoming quite frequent. And they said, yeah, sure, fine, but can you go to an occupational health therapist just to get this checked out? Naively, I was like, yep, great, sure. I went and the doctor suggested that I was registered disabled because of the effect that it had on my life and to protect me from companies and employers as well. I didn't think anything of it. And 10 days later, I was brought into a meeting. A settlement package was put in front of me and I was told to leave. And you were asked to leave? You were just told to leave? I wasn't even allowed to go back in the office. I was just told to get out. I was only 23 and I was just devastated. I thought it was all my fault. And God, like, what have I done? Yeah. So I'm a terrible employee, you know, until I spoke to a few lawyers later on. And they were like, this is quite clearly because you are classified as disabled and you can't work in a way that they want you to work yeah then kind of realized actually i didn't want to be in investment banking so maybe these things have happened for a reason right everything does yeah exactly i'm I'm kind of a firm believer in that now but that made me very scared to tell my employers later on that i had an autoimmune disease and needed to work from home sure but that made job hunting almost impossible because no companies tell you up front whether there's the ability to work from home or flexible hours or 
can you work compressed hours and not work one day a week? You know, those kind of things are just the things you work out when you've been somewhere for three to six months. You don't know them when you're looking for a job. Certainly with the bigger companies, it's something that they'd rather not offer. But if they yeah. have to, they will. <laughs> but, you know, it's not there in black and white from the start. Exactly. And so I kind of sat on the fact that that information was really needed for about three years. And actually, strangely enough, the idea for Flexit wasn't even my idea. It was my boyfriend's idea when we were sitting, chatting about how difficult it was to find that clarity about three years later. And he works at Betfair for about five years, running their kind of UK sports business. And he managed a team of 30 people that work from home a couple of days a week. They were happier, more productive. He wanted to maintain that too when he found another job. And we were then talking about why is it used to retain talent, not attract it? And why is it so difficult for candidates to find it? And this was summer 2019. We're like, well, this can't be hard to do. Maybe we should just create a list of all the companies that do and see what happens. Sure. So we decided to do that, incorporated the business in July 2019, played around with the idea of, you know, will we raise funding first will we not so, you know it's a big step to take especially as like we were from corporate backgrounds like we'd never had any startup experience then we found our cto tim who can actually build websites and we were like maybe the right way to go about it is after a couple of conversations about funding was to actually build an mvp and, and test it and then launch it into beta try and prove some traction and see what happens so you went down the kind of san fran route of build first and see how you go get an mvp I'm so so glad we did I think it was like fundamentally the best possible decision that we could have made and I now look back on us I think we had like two or three conversations with investors back in probably September of 2019 and we were just too early we didn't know what we were doing we didn't even know if the idea was going to take off and like what we had then is also really different to what we then raised funding with as well okay in what sense? Less mature product or has it flipped completely since then? Well, it's still the same focus, but actually what we offer is quite significantly different. So when we started, we thought be a peer play job platform, just put the flexible jobs up and let people apply to them. We launched that into beta. It actually grew quite quickly, definitely from the candidate side. But from the company side, like we weren't unique enough in the sense of like we were competing, particularly from a sales front. We were competing with all the other job platforms that just feature your jobs. We then started asking our candidates and the companies that were trialing us, like, why are you using us? What is the reason that you think this is a good idea? Because obviously, like, you don't just trust the startup for no reason. There's a reason you use them. Candidates were saying it's the fact that you've done our due diligence for us. We can trust that the company that is on your website is truly flexible. And companies were saying it's the association with flexible working that improves our employer brand. And we're proud to be associated with that. Helps us to stand out. And we were like, well, something staring us in the face here is seal of approval or this due diligence so we invented the idea of flexification which is we've now turned it into an automated quite rigorous process but at the time it was quite subjective we'd have a chat work it out talk to three other people in the company make sure it was the case and they're flexified which is like an accreditation something that is like a stamp that's really cool And they sit on our website. They don't have to post jobs with us, but every company that does post jobs with us has to be flexified. And that has grown quicker than we ever could have anticipated. And the demand for it now, we only launched it eight weeks ago. And the demand for that has been like above and beyond what we really could have thought of. I want one already, just talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's something that employers can be proud of having. And it really does mean that 
employer brand is increased to the extent that they can't quite imagine of like the feedback that we get from candidates is I never expect them to be this flexible. This is amazing. I'm going to go and apply now. Especially like everything comes down to COVID at the moment, but people are looking for jobs that will guarantee flexibility in the future rather than just for the rest of the year. I didn't want to talk about COVID until the end, but it feels like a kind of natural segue onto COVID. What challenges or opportunities that's presented for you? I mean, I'm guessing the approach, certainly from a company standpoint to flexible working has changed because it's had to, but you know, what are you seeing from your side? And do you think those things will last post-COVID in the new normal? We track it from a couple of different points of view. So back when lockdown first happened, like a couple of months in, probably May time, everyone was super overexcited about first working. They were thinking, this is going to last forever. You know, everyone was declaring, we don't have an office anymore. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And there were, there were loads of stats around that was like 85% of companies are going to be flexible. And we were there like, oh, God. <laughs> we've got no USB if that does and we do think that will happen but it'll be in about three to five years and the reason is because things calm down a bit now the estimation isn't 85% of companies it's 55% and now we see that too we've been tracking we have like a benchmark we turned it into a quiz but it's basically a benchmarking of over 100 companies in the UK to understand flexibility and we allow companies to use that for free to understand where they sit versus the market as well We've obviously done it so 50% is average, and that's what our flexification pass mark is too. So you have to be above average. But that, we have almost like a very beginning of an index. Like we've seen that 50%, what that was. Now that's moving back down again. So like we've had to adjust the weightings to actually reflect now what is average. And I say there's been a move of about 10 percentage points of like what average is now versus what it was six months ago. The idea of working from home once a week is becoming pretty normal whereas it would have before been like what was normal was you can work from home if you have a doctor's appointment or you need to take your dog to the vet or something like that yeah but there's still a long way to go because there is still this assumption that you need a reason to work flexibly which I think is very damaging if you think of the idea of like equality and inclusivity if you have to provide people a different working environment to what you believe to be normal then you're othering them in a sense anyway, and you're making it hard for them to be perceived as equal. So our ultimate goal at Flexer is to make flexible working normal so that everyone's on a same level playing field and doesn't have to be given a different working environment. Like parents don't have to be given a different working environment. People with disabilities don't have to be treated differently. Women with the assumption they're going to have children don't have to be treated differently. It's just that everyone sits in this environment that allows them to thrive and they can choose how they want to work with full information up front if they want to move jobs because the lack of information stops people from moving jobs as well which is crazy absolutely you guys have got a very clear mission and it's it's awesome what you're doing and i think even if the flexibility changes the bar of what becomes flexible will move with it anyway so i think you're always going to have a usp I wanted to go back to the fundraising process. You mentioned that you were kind of talking to some early investors in September when you had a beta, but then didn't get the fundraising at that stage. So at what stage did you get funding and how did you go about that? You know, you said you were new to it, which is which is great because a lot of the people that come to Bourne are new to this. They're just people with big dreams. Yeah. So it'd be really helpful for them to understand, you know, where do they go? Where do they start looking? And, and how does it all work, basically? Well, people with big dreams, it was definitely us. You know, you've got to start somewhere. Like we were so overwhelmed by the idea of like, we have this idea. I had just bought a flat. I don't have any spare money. I was like, 
I have to work. I don't know what to do. Um, <laughs> and then obviously we ended up in a pandemic and it just felt like this giant leap of faith and like my partner in a more fortunate position where he just left a job and had a bit more freedom for a few months to kind of work out what he wanted to do. And so we took that as the opportunity then to like make this jump and see could we build something from the very beginning. But again, I think the funding element was probably one of the most off-putting because there's two costs on it. There's the opportunity cost of you not working or at least not working full-time or the opportunity cost of your own sanity and time if you choose to work as well. And there's the cost of the fact that obviously it will cost you some money to build a business. We were pretty comfortable with the opportunity costs in terms of like when he moved jobs and took some time off, I took a part-time job, worked four days a week, and then did this, the other three, <laughs> for a while, for about nine months. So I only went full-time on it in July when we started fundraising. So we were a bit worried. We were like, how do we fund this? What do we do? And we had a few ideas of like, we just Googled recruitment, venture capital, or like basically tried to ask anyone, did they know anybody? Because we had no personal network of rich people that could just give us 50k or we didn't know anyone in VC and I'm sure a lot of people are in the same position but it does feel when you're googling and they're like warm intros only and you're like oh Christ like great. It can be quite intimidating. Really intimidating and so we didn't really to be honest we didn't know what to do. <laughs> so we had a chat with Q Ventures who became our lead investor. This is back in September and they were like we're not sure about these five things. So we'd had two chats with them and they were like you're too early we're not sure about these things you know and we kind of left it and we spoke to another couple of companies and they were like too early we had some terrible advice as well but like you know you take it all with a pinch of salt and sometimes feels like two steps forward one step back but we just decided to go for it and build it thinking it's not going to cost us much money just to launch a simple job platform is it set some sensible kpis for alpha made sure we got it into this closed alpha with like friends of friends and family that went well. We built it into a kind of iterated product that we thought we could like launch into the real world with some basic looks all right. We, we got a designer to design the first three pages of the website and then I taught myself sketch and did the rest. Like it was all on a shoestring. And we launched into beta in February. And when we launched into beta, what we did for the two months before was we just had a landing page with the idea of what Flexor was and got people to sign up to a wait list. Because obviously when you're launching a marketplace, you have to think of both sides. And we had a couple of companies that had agreed in principle, but then we had no candidates. And we were like, we need to launch with some kind of liquidity. Otherwise, you know, what do we do? That worked quite well. We had about 500 sign up in a couple of months with no paid marketing. And then we actually launched into beta, which was all free. And that was when we set the KPIs at which we'd meet. And then once we met them, we thought maybe we'll start seeing if we'll fundraise again. We had this bar of like 2,000 candidates, 20 companies for free and 50 jobs. And we got that. And so how did you get the candidates without the paid marketing? Is there kind of growth hacking built into the platform? or Not really. Um, the first 500 were um, word of mouth and just stumbling on us by searching on Google. When we were in beta, we did start to do a small amount of paid marketing, probably about £300 a month, I think. Luckily, our candidate acquisition cost is very low. So we were quite fortunate in that. That £300 a month got us about 300 candidates a month. That then allowed us to get to our KPIs where we thought, yeah, we've proven some form of traction. Like, I still don't think we have something. The idea of like product market fit and stuff, I think, is always so much further away than people ever think it is. But we felt like we'd proven some traction. And so then we went back out to the investors, I think, and we started again in May, 
and we said hey look we've made all this progress we spoke to you a while ago talk to us we know you had these reservations well they're not there anymore we've just proven them and they were like oh fair enough (laughs) (laughs) okay i'm sure it wasn't quite that simple or it was that simple to some extent i mean obviously that is a gross oversimplification of it but like it meant that it wasn't any more difficult then as in like they were just like come in and have another chat and then another chat and another chat and the reservations change, don't they? The takeaway that I'm getting from some of this is that your advice, or at least certainly from your experience, it's better to try and put something together and have a product that at least has a, like you say, in your case, it was 2000 amount of users that you can kind of prove that market fit to investors before approaching them and starting those conversations. You think approach them and then say, we'll see you in six months? Yeah, I actually think that because two of our main investors who provided more than two thirds of the money were people that we spoke to before we even had a product. And I think the thing is, those people have seen how far you've come. Whereas if you approach an investor with an MVP where you've reached a milestone that is, you know, good, it probably won't be quite good enough for them. They'll want to see progress and they'll want to sit with you for another couple of months to see like, was that all you can do or are you going to continue to move that far? So actually having them see your whole journey can be quite helpful. And of course, that's not always practical and you can't always do that. But I would encourage people just to like learn a bit, like just go and chat to some people like, do I write your pride? You're not going to burn a bridge. If you come in all like naive and fresh, no one's going to judge you as much as it is an intimidating industry. They don't bite. <laughs> <laughs> they might just ignore you. I mean, do you have any advice for people looking to get a response from investors? Because I imagine certainly the VCs, a lot of them operate quite a closed shop. Like you say, it's a bit of a kind of walled garden and it's it's difficult to get in in some of them. I know you mentioned conventions and they are a much more approachable bunch, but some of them are quite intimidating for a young startup who, like you say, doesn't know the industry. I mean, do you have any advice on breaking down those barriers and, you know, certainly coming from a cold intro? Just be completely shameless. I was never the kind of person who would repeatedly email people without any response. It's like the complete opposite of dating etiquette. Like, if you go on a date with someone, they don't reply to you, like you don't keep texting them. But like, with investors, I kept emailing them. I was like, oh, you're ignoring me. It's fine. Here's another thing about Flexer. Two weeks later, I'd be like, I haven't heard anything from you, but this other thing has happened that I think you'll find interesting. And the biggest one is when you have some commitment of your rounds, like we had Q Ventures in and they said, yes, we'll invest. Once you have that first amount of money committed, it doesn't have to be term sheets age, it can be soft committed. I think that's the point at which you're like, you've got all these conversations you've been having And what I wish we'd done sooner and we did for the last six weeks just to get things closed was we turned it into like a sales effort, like a newsletter. And every two weeks, it's very easy to say that before you like, oh, everyone should do that. But it's not really practical until you have a bit of money because then you're taken seriously. But we were like, hi, everybody. And we break down into like funding products and then on the B2B and the, the B2C side and then like other interesting things like PR, publicity, whatever. And we broke it down on like all of the progress that we'd made in two weeks and made sure that we were pushing for like one achievement, at least in each of those buckets. And we just emailed that to everyone. And then I'd follow up individually with each of them like three days later and be like, did you see that? Like, what's your feedback? And it was just constant. It was about 50% of my time for three to four months. That's a serious hustle. Yeah. 
some people say, and I, I remember the most demoralizing advice I was ever given. They were like, if it takes you longer than three months to raise money, then it, your idea is not good enough. It took us about three and a half to four months. I think I can't remember exactly how long. Where did you hear that? I know. So I, that's why I say bad advice. Like, I don't think it's fair. And I was like, we are in the middle of a pandemic. And like, this is a pandemic as well. <laughs> I think three and a half months is pretty good. I, I mean, I'm noticing things are moving so slowly. Yeah. And we're talking to loads of different startups at the moment who are looking for us to kind of build their products out. And lots of them are having the same conversations of, oh, yeah, we're going to start next month. And then it rolls yeah. on and it rolls on and it rolls on. And yeah, we're just waiting for the investment to hit is something I hear a lot. And I guess it's just investors potentially are cautious at the moment. No one really knows what's happening. So there's a lot of uncertainty in the air. So I think you've done really well. There's also no ideal timeline. And I think it comes down to like one of the biggest problems in the startup industry is that everyone pretends like they know what they're doing. And everyone pretends like they're the best entrepreneur and their business is growing the fastest and no one else could possibly ever rival that. And I think that that was probably one of the most intimidating things to me before I started to actually cut through all the crap. Sorry. Um, no, you absolutely can. You encourage it because there is a lot of crap and tons of sound bites that people are happy to just throw around willy-nilly because it just, yeah. it's what you're supposed to say, right? And it's just like total toxic positivity in the sense of like people are just like, oh, I woke up this morning and I only went to bed at four in the morning last night because I just had so many ideas about my startup and how I'm going to make it grow. And it's like I'm working 16 hours a day for like the last month because my idea is so amazing and I just can't possibly wait to get it off the ground. And it's like you know what? I work very, very concentrated, but I probably don't work more than eight hours a day. I walk the dog. I like having a coffee in the morning. I like cycling and my brain doesn't work like that. So you're not getting up at four o'clock in the morning? It's not like four o'clock in the morning, have a green juice, do a workout, like, I don't know, walk the dog eight miles, come back, learn how to fly a plane and then start working on your business. And you're like, my God, what a load of bollocks. <laughs> But um, it's full of it and it's really, really hard to ignore it. Just the same with like, and I don't know, I was talking about this the other day, like I don't know if it's because I'm a young female founder, but I get so many messages and questions all the time about, are you having a crisis of confidence? Do you feel like you have imposter syndrome? Like, do you need help with getting out of that rut and making sure that you're the right leader for your business? And I've started actually emailing them back and going like, this is really, really unhelpful. I almost feel after six months of this rubbish that I have imposter syndrome for not having imposter syndrome because I'm just being told all the time that I should feel like I don't know what I'm doing. But of course, I sometimes like have no idea what I'm doing. But equally, there's no one better than me and my partner to try and get Flexor off the ground because we know this business inside out and we know what the mission is and we know what we're trying to achieve. So I don't worry about that. I more worry about will it succeed in the long run because of the idea and because of the nature of the market and the industry, but it's not us. No, it's not. And that's an interesting point, actually. Do you kind of front up the business? Are you a public face of the business? or And do you think that's important for founders? I think if you're a mission or purpose driven in the loosest sense, like obviously we're a for-profit business, but we do have a purpose behind us in the sense of like, I really strongly believe in a flexible workplace being a more inclusive workplace and it leading to equality in the long term. I think if you do have that mission or purpose behind you, it is important to have a kind of face of the business that publicizes that and talks about it. And that is me for Flexer, because in some of my past jobs, I've done a lot of like media and TV and PR stuff. So it kind of made sense for it to be me as well, I guess, with the autoimmune disease stuff. 
to not to want to capitalize on that but then when it comes down to actually like the day-to-day running of it what has happened and I don't think we ever could have expected it to but it's definitely been a really good thing and we're glad has happened is again marketplace business like there are two sides to it and organically it's happened that I do the b2b side and Morris does the b2c side and actually having each of us accountable for that has been really helpful because even if it's not like no I'll never go to him like the candidate base isn't growing quickly enough and he's like you're not selling enough it's more that just one of us is overseeing the whole thing and then we can talk and bring them together and then our CTO so third co-founder obviously just builds it all and doesn't worry about which side it's benefiting we just kind of make the suggestions around what we think each of our areas needs. Great well Molly I think you've done an amazing job getting to where you guys are and I hope that Flexer continues to grow and flourish. I just wondered if you had any kind of final advice or tips for people starting out. I think my biggest piece of advice would be there's this really fine line of being so adamant that you know what you're doing and being on that course and ignoring everyone because a lot of people don't want to see people be successful and they want to find holes in things and they want the negative. Negativity will exist around you for the whole time when you're trying to get something off the ground and just being really determined to ignore that the whole time is like one of the most important things I think we could have done but then there's this other side of things is like knowing when to stop like knowing when something is a bad idea knowing and trusting your instincts when it's like no the path that we're on we either need to pivot slightly or we need to stop with this tactic or something so there's like this balance between being really headstrong, but also being very, very aware and agile and willing to move. And it's finding that balance of like what works for you has probably been the only way that we've succeeded. Because if we'd carried on the pathway we were on a year ago, we wouldn't be here now. But equally, if we'd listened to everybody that doubted us and said, you know, you should be doing this or this or this, we also would have failed. It's a tough skill. I've met some very stubborn founders. And yeah, I totally see where you're coming from. You've got to try and find that middle ground. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you, Molly. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you. And all the best with Flexa. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of LaunchBase, brought to you by Born Digital. Mission complete. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a comment. For more info and to stay connected off the show, visit launchbase.fm.